Welcome to the podcast version of Robots in Depth, episode 12, with Erin Rapace Bishop, in cooperation with Vvolver. Robots in Depth is supported by Aptomica. Visit aptomica.com to connect. You will find all past episodes and more on robotsindepth.com. Welcome to Robots in Depth. Today I'm honored to have Erin Rapace. I usually like to start with how you discovered robotics. How did you get into robotics? So when I was a student in high school, there's a program called the FIRST Robotics Program. And I was a junior, I was 16 years old, and I knew I was good at math and science. My dad was an engineer. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do in my career, but as a junior in high school, you're starting to get pressured on what to study for college. And that year I joined the first robotics team at my high school, which was actually a very competitive team in the whole program. So uh, great engineers, great mentors, great students. We had a fantastic workspace. We already had funding. And so we got to focus on building great robots that could compete. And those robots uh, did do very well in the competitions, which was very exciting. And my team at that time also won this other big award called the Chairman's Award. So there's very good energy, very smart people. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I was, uh, I met my people. <laughs> and um, continued on with that through college, was doing first robotics events at Northeastern University in Boston, can stayed involved and leveraged that activity in the first robotics program to get internships at robotics companies thereafter, which how, is how I started my career. Hmm. Did you have a background in hardware or software before you started this or was it, did you, were you introduced to both hardware and software at the same time? At 16 years old, yes, I was introduced to hardware, robotics, software, the sensors. Mm -hmm. My dad was a mechanical engineer, so I went ahead to study mechanical engineering in college um, and got my master's in 2009. Yeah, that's, it's always interesting to see how people got started because it's usually quite early and, and, and it's an exploration because usually you haven't thought about that yourself. So, so you, you, you did the first. Can you describe a little bit that experience uh, to do the, the competition? It was uh, very engaging. So first robotics, what they want to do is make a spectacle or almost um, make it as interesting as how people view sporting events. So they have a field about the size of a basketball court. They have robots that weigh about 130 pounds, can be up to five feet tall, about uh, maybe two to three feet with, so they're large and they're significant mass. And every year there's a game with different colored balls. They put the ball on this thing or shoot the ball over that thing or move the box into this thing. And you end up having robots, teams of robots competing against each other on a stage or on a basketball court sized field and there's lights and there's music. And so it was very engaging. There's hundreds of teams. Well. Not hundreds, perhaps any single event might have anywhere between 40 and 70 teams. So you have this venue of all these kids wearing different colored shirts, waving flags, getting super excited to see their robot in a match. Did you also have adult uh, assistance to, to build them or, or did you build them yourself? Uh, most teams, uh, each team was different, but my team, we had a lot of mentor and adult help. So engineers from Hamilton Sunstrand at the time, United Technologies, they volunteered their time to uh, mentor the kids and basically we were all building the robot together. Because that's the thing that differs robots from, from software is that they could potentially be quite dangerous. Um, 
and we, 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 we have to have uh, that aspect in mind too. And sometimes parts need to get sent off for real machining. We couldn't yeah. really hack it together in the, in the high school machine shop. So engineers would help package it up and either take it to their own internal shop or somehow get it processed correctly. And that's also a great way of finding role models and finding people that can, can mentor you and can, uh, can guide you. Most of these people, young people go on to education and, and then mm -hmm. you can find their own passion or their software, hardware or both. Or, yeah, so that's, that's great of being a role model and I hope very much fun for everyone, right? Oh, it was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Are you still involved somehow? Uh, not so much currently. Mm -hmm. uh, I stayed involved throughout college and I do try to volunteer with the San Jose Regional because I know they always need good robot inspectors, people who kind of know what they're looking at to go in and make sure the teams built it safely and correctly. Uh, but right now, focusing all my time on startups. So we're going to talk lots about robotic startups. I love them. And I, I think that uh, this is really the time to do a robotic startup. I, do you agree with me? Is this, um, is this it for, for robotics? It's only going to increase. Mm. So it really depends on which vertical you're bringing your market into, on whether or not your timing is accurate. But the good news is the, where Web 2.0 was the buzzword in, the, in Silicon Valley in 2009, and then it became mobile apps much between 2010 and 2015. The next new buzzword is Internet of Things. So investors are looking at the Internet of Things, and robotics is kind of next after that. So they're starting to re-understand the concept that you need to invest in hardware builds, that it's going to take a little more investment, that... Um, it's worth some time and patience because the Internet of Things is going to demand that kind of attention from investors. So uh, once investors are warmed up to the idea, again, that they, their investments may take some time to come to fruition, then they're ready to enter the, a robotics startup. Because robotics takes longer time than software. It's not going to have the same growth as an app or as a website. Um, and it's much harder. But what I reflected on in, in the last years is that it's also much bigger. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you see the, the value that many of the websites produce for us compared to if you go into agriculture, you go into construction industry, there's a couple of new zeros there on the end. So e even if it takes us longer time to address the market, the market is magnitudes larger and, and that kind of makes the math work, right? Yeah, and that's what the investors are looking for. So if you go in and you say, hey, I'm going to need $100 million investment over the next 10 years, you're going to ask you some questions. Yeah. But the first question they're going to ask is, is the thing you want to sell, um, well, who's the market? How many, how many will people will buy it as you mm. propose to sell it? Mm. So you need to do a lot of diligence on talking to customers, getting customers online, on board with being your advisors, mm. and making sure that if you build a thing, it could potentially be sold um, within a very large space. Mm. I will say, though, some, if you look back at mobile phones and computers, uh, I mean, the first 10 or 20 years of, those, of the existence of those devices was hardware-based. So the companies were build a better chip, build a better computer, build a better drive, mm. rinse and repeat. Mm. To the point where you see consolidation, which has happened. Mm. And now these devices are freely available and uh, most of the devices are a race to the bottom in cost. Mm. However, people are finding that the values in software are mobile apps. So mm. this has been a conversation in robotics where people think apps for robots. Mm. But this first requires somebody to build a robot that someone can build apps for. Mm. Instead, I like to have people think about service businesses 
they can leverage with other people's robotics. A very simple example is let's say you're a house cleaner. Let's start a house cleaning company. What I would do if I had a house cleaning company, I would show up there with a Roomba, with a scuba, with, um, I think there's these window washer things now. Mm -hmm. uh, and basically I would put a fleet of home robots to work that would make my time more efficient and then therefore can drop the cost. So that's my cleaning business. Uh, another business is, um, let's see, I guess any kind of service business. So a lot of customers, for example, in retail, you hear a lot about these mobile robots that are going to go into retail, and those full companies focus on building the device itself. However, it's going to be difficult for one robot company to make all these potentially different retail customers happy. Uh, there's a definitely room for somebody who's entrepreneurially minded to take that robot, write the software that might be specific to one type of retail vertical or one type of application, and it's... It, and then there you have it. It's an app on a robot. The app might be just running on the touchscreen on the robot's interface. But you bought a robot from someone else, you bought a platform, and you wrote an app for it, and your entire team is more focused on the sales and execution. Because what we found with mobile robotics, there's a lot of logistics involved. And those logistics are going to eat up uh, most of the time in the sale. Yeah, a robot, again, it has to be moved to the customer's premises. And there's, I mean, it's a physical thing. If, if, if there's a bug, you have to get it back. Mm -hmm. It's not just every time you refresh the web page, there's a new version, right? So yeah, it's, it's a totally different challenge. But how do you see that, that we overcome? The investors, are they, do they have this patience? Will they give you enough time and money to, to do this? Some of them do, and those are the ones who are involved with the accelerator pro program. So there are more accelerators that want to focus on robotics specifically, and they are very welcoming. But they're still going to give uh, any new entrepreneur uh, kind of the stress test, which is, have you talked to any customers? And who's advising you? Which customer is advising you? Uh, which, which market are you serving? But an important key, which is one of the reasons why I think robotics is somewhat a slow ramp, is investors will be far more comfortable investing in you if you had patented technology. Mm. So uh, I'm happy to share my game plan. If I was looking to go start a new startup, I would go to the academic robotics conferences, find the budding PhD students or professors who are eager to take their technology to market, learn that technology, and then learn which market uh, anything underserved or anything not served well um, that this technology could have that point of differentiation. So someone's entire PhD thesis or entire uh, tenant, um, time at a university could be that one nugget, that one two percent of a company or of a product idea, like really just a small nugget, don't, don't think too much of it. But that nugget is patentable, it's yours, it's what give your companies, gives your company value, and then focused your time in that company building out the rest of the 98% of that application. And I must say that going to the, the scientific robotics conferences is a very nice experience. You meet some uh, incredible people and, and, and some very smart young people. And, and uh, I also see that when I talked to them maybe five years ago, they, they didn't see starting a company as a viable way forward. Uh, and the people who did had a very rough time because investors were not interested five years ago. But now I, only see, I, I not only see more people wanting to do it, but I also see that the investor community is actually 
uh, making it possible for them to do it. And this is why these conferences like Robo Business and some others, it's having an academic group who has a technology be willing to partner with a, t uh, a group or a team or a sales team who's interested in serving a specific market. Because a VC will want both halves. They'll want someone to have the patents and they want someone to have the sales experience. Without that partnership, and this is where I've seen a lot of companies fail, there's um, sometimes people have egos Really? And uh, there's sometimes tension between the technical person and the business person over whether or not they can trust each other. And this is somewhat unfortunate because a lot of companies have uh, not succeeded as much as they could have uh, because there might be some tension over whose company is it really? You have somewhat two CEOs merging with different backgrounds. The more people are willing to make that a partnership, you have someone from the scientific world partnering somebody from the business world and it's equal, and they kind of accept that they both bring very important halves to the equation, uh, then we'll see more startups being successful. So you then moved on from university and, and the first to, to startups. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so throughout grad school, well, throughout undergrad, I did internships at iRobot and Dean Kamen's place, and I wanted to uh, do more robotics. So I joined a human-robot interaction lab at um, near Boston. It was a lab in UMass Lowell. Uh, so it was the computer science department. So we made an arrangement where I spent two years working on my master's in mechanical engineering, but I was sitting in the computer science lab building uh, robots for, for the software guys, software kids, so I call them software kids. <laughs> Um, and that was a really great experience. I built, uh, we built a, a, a wheelchair-mounted robotic arm that opens doors to see if we can make it extremely low cost. Mm. And so we focused on a, a mechanism, which I like to call under-actuation. So again, more degrees of freedom than the amount of actuators you have involved. So it was one, one motor here turning, um, basically having a doorknob opener open and close like this and go open and close and turn. And uh, one fewer actuators is less cost, it's one less test plan. It actually ends up being more robust and somewhat more reliable. So that was a lot of fun. But uh, five years ago in late 2009, I had that dream, you know, to do robotic startups and started looking out in Silicon Valley to see if, any, if I can get a job at any one of them and uh, joined AnyBots. And we were one of the first companies to launch uh, the telepresence devices that you see rolling around today. Yeah, and and, and now you're with, with another company? Mm -hmm. Did you move straight from AnyBots to... I spent some time in automation between the two. So at AnyBots, startup, learning things along the way, then moved to Adept Technologies, and I was product managing the mobile robots group, uh, trying to figure out for small autonomous vehicles within spaces what what should that vehicle do? Uh, then I moved on to uh, industrial perception. We were using 3D vision to unload boxes out of trucks. Mm. And that was a lot of fun. Um, and we were bought by Google uh, in late 2013. And then since then, I moved on to Suitable Technologies, who, realizing that I worked on telepresence at, at its inception five years ago, we were already aligned at a lot of the perspectives and, and points of view on how this product should be evangelized and uh, distributed. Mm. So I uh, came on board as their director of marketing in late 2013, mm. so now two you're, years ago. Now you left the hardcore engineering behind you. Do, do you feel sorry? No, I still, I still wear a product hat. And uh, it's very important for tech companies because a lot of people who study engineering move into sales roles or move mm. into marketing roles or move into product roles. I still keep a product hat on. Um, but there is this, what's really fun about suitable technologies 
is that our customers are not buying it because it's a cool tech robot. And so you need to take a lot of people in robotics love robots. And this is our worst enemy, actually. This is the this is the bad part. We love robots so much, it's almost like loving a child, that you can't see the flaws. <laughs> and and people really want to message it based on their tech specs and it's this and that and the other thing. Whereas Beam, we're driving a lot of referrals because people are using it to uh, connect with their team more often. Basically, they're using it to uh, be available to people, have more routine day-to-day -day conversations with people, go into every type of workspace, whether it's a lab or a factory or cafeterias. We have remote employees who join their teams at lunch in the company cafeteria and, and just hang out with people and uh, really generate camaraderie. And the value proposition for Beam is it's used by people who just want to be better communicators and want to be keeping up with the team and the friends and the people they work with uh, because it's, it's a human relationship. So we dropped the entire messaging around cool tech robot, which you get a couple of little bit of tech press. You, if you're a startup, you get one chance to launch your product and get it in the tech press. After that, the reporters want stories. Yeah. And so we've been putting the beams into museums recently. So people with disabilities who have accessibility issues who maybe can't walk or can't travel, uh, they log into the beam and they drive around the museum and they get a tour and they get a chance to be outside their house even when they can't uh, physically, physically move. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a great mission. Huh? So it's putting on both lenses of what's technically capable and what are people actually buying and aspiring. And uh, there's this great uh, quote or message, I f forget where I read it, but sell people the version of the person they want to be. Mm. Sell, sell people a better version of themselves. So if it's any robot, it's, you can go in and say, well, it drives at this speed, it has this sensor, it does this, does this, does this. But that doesn't answer the question why. But if you go in and try to tell somebody, like, here's the better version of your warehouse, here's the better version of your factory, here's the better version of your operation, mm. or whatever it may be, when you include this device, people all of a sudden can start seeing a future that includes your product, and then they're somewhat more psychologically motivated to, to include that product in with, the, with their future. Yeah, that's actually what I discovered when I bought an automated uh, vacuum cleaner mm -hmm. uh, because I, I, had, I bought it at a very specific time. We were just selling our apartment. So we cleaned all out like 80% of the furniture and we vacuum cleaned four times. And I had, I just bought it. So I had it in the box and I think, I like gadgets, like pick it out, I want to play with it. And I did and I put it on and it cleaned mm -hmm. and it filled its little bin twice. So mm -hmm. what I was saying, isn't that it, it has nothing to do with me not wanting to vacuum clean. Mm -hmm. It has to do with me not being able to vacuum clean because it does it so much better and all the time. Mm -hmm. So the future, the, 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 the improved version of my home was a clean home. Yeah. And that's kind of what you want by cleaning anyway. So uh, this is exactly, uh, this is a very good way of doing it, showing them that there is this new version of whatever you're doing now and it has these properties that you are most certainly would like. So you take your options and your, there's a lot of robot vacuum cleaning startups out there. I don't know why. I've, mm -hmm. Everyone's consolidated either iRobot and a couple other competitors. But people want us to keep building them. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's this marketing case study mm -hmm. that talks about a carpet cleaning company mm -hmm. where the parallel is if you're going to sell a robotic vacuum, 
what are you going to sell? Mm-hmm. Uh, it has indoor GPS. It has this amount of suction. Um, it fills up the bin at this rate, grin and cat hair. Mm-hmm. Or here's all the illnesses you can obtain by having dirty carpet. Mm-hmm. So this is a little more of a red flag. Mm-hmm. And this reminds people that if they don't have time at home to clean or vacuum their own carpet, they need to buy one of these devices in order to do it for them. I have a Roomba at home, cleans up all my cat hair. Mm-hmm. Love it. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and it's when you look at robotics technologies and you want to sell them, there's usually something that I find quite odd that makes the customer sign on the dotted line. Hmm. And we're now in a major cons- commercial space here that's a huge facility. And once I was talking to a lady that was responsible for cleaning, and this is, we're talking of thousands of thousands of square meters used by people all the day. So this is a big task. They had, like, 30 people doing it constantly and they were still fighting to make it get it done. Her issue with vacuum cleaning was that they were hitting the skirting boards all the time. So she had to bring in the painters to make it look nice. Mm. So she would buy the robot if it stayed off the skirting board. That was her. If I could sell her that robot, she'd sign immediately. We also know this from mining industry mm-hmm. that they usually don't have men driving because women are nicer to the, to the equipment. <laughs> But oh. the robot's even nicer. Yeah. So when this company trying to introduce automated, uh, big, you know, the, the huge trucks in mines in Australia, when they could show the fact that you could keep your tires for two months more, they signed immediately because two months of those tires are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, so whatever the robot cost was irrelevant. I mean, if I can save this much on my tire cost, of course I'm going to do it. Yeah. Um, and so they did a test, it worked out, and, and now they're saving their tires. So usually, as you said, we're trying to sell it one way because we don't understand the customer. Mm-hmm. But when we understand the customer, we can sell it the right way. Mm-hmm. Do you also see a trend where we actually get access to the customer, where we are kind of let in the door and are, we're a ba- a, able to market our stuff. I think five years ago, they would all think that's science fiction. I don't have time for that. I have to go change the time. <laughs> Do you see a trend there where, where your customers are more open to a robotic solution? Well, there are customers, more of them coming out of the woodwork at events like these or any other trade show. So you might be able to, so a way to somewhat market test is to set up your idea in a 10 by 10 booth at a trade show and then people you know, make your best hypothesis and make a sign saying the problem you solve. At, at Industrial Perception, we were basically saying, uh, we unload boxes out of trucks. Mm-hmm. Just making it very simple. That was our hypothesis for what we wanted to build. And we had a video showing that we could somewhat do that. So hypothesis and what you think you can do, um, you gotta come in with some information. And so do your, do your rating, do your research, and if you, Sometimes it is easy to get an initial meeting with a customer because you might be their most interesting meeting of the day. Their yeah. job might be to look at new automation or to improve processes and uh, take them out to lunch, you know, be, be their entertainment for the day. That's, that's the sales gig, right? Yeah. And ask them questions because they want to know people care about their problems. Uh, luckily, more large custom- customers are volunteering the types of problems that they have. But sometimes there's such big problems that you don't really know how to chew it down. The, the other way to find a market, though, is to be a lower cost version of something that already exists. Mm. Very simple. So I would say anytime you see, you know, walk a, like watch a construction site, uh, notice snow plows or snow blowers going up and down the road, mm. uh, people sweeping, people... Um, 
just kind of, you know, just doing what they do. And you might find that if you put in new technology or new robotic technology, that entire thing could lower in price or be a lot easier. Not necessarily make it full, it might not need to be fully automated. Having a human loop is something they still want to do but you can uh, at least have an offering that might compete with what they have currently. We saw that in, in, in the web space, of course, when we went from Alta Vista to Google or from, from whatever it was before Facebook to Facebook. They were doing something that was quite well known. Mm -hmm. They were just doing it that much better. And I would think that they did it with a focus and with a passion. This was their thing. This was not something they did because it was a part of another business. This was their thing. Search, and I still is for Google, I mm -hmm. would presume. This is our thing. We're going to do it insanely well, and we're going to focus on this. And I think that that is probably also a good thing in robotics. Find something, like you say, go out, watch the world, see where is there, could there be potential to improve, mm -hmm. and then grab that and make it your thing. Uh, and I think the customer will notice that passion and notice that focus. And be specific as possible. Mm. One of the interesting exercises at Industrial Perception was we were, we, we looked at different types of boxes and, and trailers and trucks and we were looking for a certain kind of configuration and uh, like are the boxes relatively the same size or similar weight and we figured out what that industry was and the more I narrowed the warehousing industry down to a specific type of warehouse the more I can give the exact number the market's this big if we solve this one problem, we'll have this many customers and generate this much revenue, mm. and it'll probably take us four years to get into all these customers. Mm. But then an investor sees that that's the first step. You have something that you're certain about, and it's a logical step to think you can grow from there. So going as narrow as possible, almost being as boring as possible, it might make a dinner party conversation a little more difficult when you start off as, I'm a roboticist, I have a robotics startup, to being like, um, I sell these little, sen I sell sensor packages to oil companies and whatever. <laughs> yeah, so instead of talking about uh, logistics, you talk about milk carton logistics because uh, that's what we can solve, and, 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 but it's also a huge business. Lots yeah. of those are distributed every day, everywhere. Yeah, a lot, a lot of milk goes bad, so also, if there happens to be any problems, they're just infuriating. You mentioned milk and watched a, an episode of Last Week Tonight. Do you follow this at all? John yeah. Oliver, yeah, HBO? Yeah. He's amazing. So, oh, yeah. So he had an episode about all the food waste. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And that uh, consumed by dates on all dairy pro products are basically arbitrary, so they can get more of it thrown out and mm. sold out more. And you think about the entire value chain of dairy products. Mm and how much of it is thrown away. Hmm. Now that's slightly upsetting to me. <laughs> yeah, uh, more than slightly. More than slightly upsetting that all these cows, uh, anyway, before all I go to- All this effort and, and all this, uh, on all this food. Yeah. I mean, there's, peop there's quite a lot of people in the world that doesn't have enough of it. We shouldn't be throwing it away. Yeah, what if instead that milk got packaged into cheese and it could be shipped and we need to have the tax incentives to do that correctly. But you can look at that from an automation lens and you're like, here's a problem that's infuriating. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How, but is there an automation piece to it that maybe could reduce the price? Or, I mean, it, it, we are talking about slightly different problems where there's overproduction. Mm -hmm. And so clearly it's not uh, 
too expensive to make too much of. Mm. But maybe there could be a better way to deal with the waste and you can apply your knowledge and automation to, to somewhat do something with that. And I also think that it's, it's an expensive product, you have to refrigerate it, and it's also heavy. Mm -hmm. So if you could fill that truck with a little bit less weight, mm -hmm. I think that might be a, a, an avenue to explore. Yeah. But there's always something odd, something for me a little bit left field that's saying, ah, now the customer, now, now the customer's really positive and they're signing and they're building this robot system. Uh, I know, for instance, that when they're looking at um, um, exploring for minerals, the problem is that you have to be quite uh, highly educated and, and experienced to know, to see where there might be uh, possible to, possibility to do that. And mines are usually located in very nasty environments. Mm -hmm. So the companies have, a, companies have a problem with getting people to go where they need to go. Mm -hmm. So they're now working on developing a robot that can go where they need to go. And then the person can use the robot to evaluate the landscape and see where are we going to test, how are we going to test, and explore for mineral, minerals that way. Because it's simply impossible to put the person out there, usually in the really cold or really hot or really nasty places, for a very long time. I mean, it's not so that you go there for a day a year. You go home a day a year. The rest of the time you're living in the desert looking for, for, for aluminum or something. So. I think, and that somewhat brings the conversation full circle. Mm -hmm. There's an also uh, for a low hanging fruit type of application. So one of them is look at current systems and see if automation or new technology can lower the price. Mm -hmm. But uh, suitable technology is because we build telepresence systems. We are constantly working with people who want to recruit that specialist or want a consultation or want somebody who's truly knowledgeable about a topic to be in the space, mm -hmm. uh, in the factory or in um, basically a hospital in order to uh, purvey their expertise. Mm. And so any kind of job anywhere mm. uh, where it's difficult to recruit, it might be spe more specific kind of roving robot for mines and you need a better camera in order to see the difference between, um, between minerals mm. or uh, you know, going underwater or going into space, mm. uh, looking at ice falls, um, and even like, I'm just making stuff up, mm. but like ski resorts having uh, kind of like avalanche ski patrol mm. um, robotics. And then we come to the security aspect. Yeah. We simply don't want to send people out there doing it. Yeah. Because I mean, if they want to or not, we can't do it if it's really dangerous. So yeah, there's lots of opportunities out there for that. So take your knowledge, take who you are as a roboticist, hardware, software, and go out and look where there's inefficiencies, where there is lack of staff, or, or a problem like that and try to solve that. Mm -hmm. um, and focus, be, be, be really, really boring. <laughs> the more boring you are, the more likely you are to succeed. Get, yeah. out, get out of the lab, get mm. out of the lab, mm. go experience life, mm. ask people questions. And when you find something they think will be a hit, be hyper-focused on it. Mm. And, mm. and be okay that dinner conversations, you might not be the general all-knowing roboticist, you might instead have a successful company. Yeah, and you know what? When it comes to dinner conversation, I've, I've been doing this now for, more, for, 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 for nearly 10 years, talking about robotics is going to be the next big thing. And, and, and a few years ago, I, I, I saw a definite, a definite shift in the response. The first five years, it was, uh, <laughs> then for two years, it was, please stop talking about robotics now. I've heard enough. And now? 
it is really turning over to the other side. Could you tell me more about this? I saw them using a robot, mm -hmm. and these guys have uh, one of the beam robots. I, I saw this, and I, I saw that on TV, and yeah, I met the guy who did it two years ago. And, and, and yeah, and it, it's so, it, the, 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 the tone is really changing. People out there, the general masses, are discovering robotics, like they discovered the cell phone. It was there years before they even considered buying one. But I think that they are opening their eyes. There is going to be a bigger market out there because they're looking at, oh, that's pretty cool, that's neat, right? Yeah, and the, that's actually likely what will be helping robotics accelerate. So when trying to describe something to someone who's never heard of it, heard of it before, you need to benchmark the conversation, the frame of reference. Mm -hmm. With us, it's like, oh, have you used a video chat client? And wouldn't it be cool if you could move around the space? Um, and now people just know Beam is Beam because they've seen it and interacted with it. And then they can tell their friends like, oh, I'm going to invite you to use my Beam and show you what it is. And more people have the frame of reference of uh, what different robots do there. And it, makes, it elevates the conversation for everyone involved, the buyer and the seller, um, the startup and the investor. Uh, there's more parallels and more level of understanding on um, where you're starting the conversation instead of educating people from scratch. Mm, and mm, as mm. that education continues as more people become exposed to robotics or use them or have a friend that uses it or reads it or watches a video about it, then everybody can start communicating and talking about ideas um, a little more fluidly. We've got over this first, very difficult first step and uh, now, now we can start to get, gain speed with, uh, with, uh, with, when we're going forward. Mm -hmm. You have a long overview, you have a long involvement with robotics. Uh, I know predictions is very hard, but we're now here 2015. What are we talking about 2025? 10 years from now? Long time enough. You could really hit some hard problems there. You've got significant amount of time, right? I think it's going to be a gradual growth and similar like 2015. I look back at 2005. Mm. And uh, what didn't exist in 2005? Uh, 4G connectivity, the good, reliable Wi-Fi mm. wasn't there. So telepresence the smartphone was, like smart telepresence would have been impossible 10 mm. years ago. Uh, the smartphone didn't exist, iPads didn't exist. Uh, the Kinect sensor and cheaper sensors were not available. There were sick LiDARs, which people were using for some SLAM research. Now those LiDARs are less expensive and therefore enabling people to do more research on it. So that's opening up the entire automated guided vehicle world. So, but it was still somewhat gradual. We wanted better internet. So 10 years from now, we'll have even better, faster connectivity, which means we can send more data, which means it can make more decisions in the cloud or have more references. Uh, be, we won't have pure organic, uh, pure, um, a robot walking around a space manipulating things. I think it's going to take time to build up the databases of different types of images and products. Vision systems will all be relying on 3D in order to be better. A vision system that does 2D photos really well, they're probably going to sell it into more um, like image recognition on Google Plus and kind of internet image sorting. Uh, but in order to recognize and manipulate objects, it can be highly reliable in 3D. So we need better sensors, not so sure less expensive sensors, but a suite of sensors that can do uh, short range, mid range, far range. Let's see what else. I, I really see it to be gradual. Do, do you think we're going to have uh, more robots in our homes, or is it more workplace related? I think 
Well, you're going to see more telepresence systems around, but we don't like calling those robots. And here's mm. the reason why. Uh, we did a lot of research, like human interaction, almost HCI research with mm. the telepresence devices five years ago. And if, let's say, you're beaming in to visit me. Mm. If I introduce you as a robot, mm. doesn't that feel a little insulting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so you're a pilot, you're in a space, you might be with your coworkers, you might mm. be in a place where no one knows you. Mm. And the whole idea is that you and I can have an interaction as equal people. Mm. Mm. That we're both uh, equally well represented, we're mm. both professional, we're both uh, you know, gonna have a face-to-face -face interaction that in our philosophy, we want to bring that interaction to as close as natural as possible. Mm. And luckily, we have a lot of customers reverberating that, mm. that experience. Mm. But if this is the same reason why we don't ask, we ask people not to put hats or T-shirts on the beams or anything mm. like that. What's happening is it's reminding me that there's a machine layer mm. between mm. us, mm. which doesn't do you very well to have a, ver a conversation as equals. No. So the beams are designed to be as minimalist as possible. So the two people focus on the face-to-face -face interaction. Mm. And taking that design philosophy has worked out really well. And we're not a robot. We're collaboration, communication system. Mm. If you look back at old telephone ads mm. in like the 1930s, mm. they're advertising for specific types of conversation. Mm. No one would advertise a phone that way anymore. Mm. Actually, no. today, they just advertise it based on how good a camera it has. So yeah, how I twisted. Know. Everyone understands what a phone is. Mm. So beams, we need to somewhat communicate different types of conversation, mm. which seems a little backwards. Mm. Mm. But there will be a day when people just understand mm. what it means to communicate on a beam. Do you think that the beam of 2025, will it have a manipulator on there so that I can also interact physically with the world? It probably would be an option, but there's a lot of drawbacks with adding a manipulator. For one, um, it increases the cost significantly. Mm. Uh, I have, you have to have specific peripherals attached to your computer, so it makes it mm. harder to use, and you have to buy the peripherals and use mm. how to le learn how to use the peripherals. Mm. And um, there's still probably going to be some limited amount of range. So mm. for the, the price and complexity, and the, like, you take a, in robotics in general, we still have a gripper problem. Mm. So if I have a gripper on a telepresence device, mm. that gripper is still likely not to be as good as your hand. Mm. And you still might not be able to pick up much stuff um, unless I put a hand on it and charge you $100,000 for that. So I can make a very expensive handed manipulator. And you know there, will, there are less expensive prosthetics coming. But then how do you control it from your end? And in terms of getting a product out the door, this is a lot of extra cost and liability complexity that doesn't mm. really help explain to people um, that a lot of people are already spending money to send their eyes and ears around the world on an airplane. Yeah, and I, I would presume that in 95% of all cases, the only thing we use our hands for is open the doors and press the button in the elevator. We, we don't actually do much stuff with them uh, in many situations. Mm -hmm. uh, except what is necessary for us, you say, to bring eyes and ears around the world. We fly our eyes and ears around the world and spend 
lots of money and time. My body is getting fed up with flying. I can tell you, yeah, my engineers will have to travel some other way soon. I, like I, I don't see a point. I think you know, fly when you want to, go on vacation. And a lot of our customers are business travelers who mm. keep the beam back in their headquarters, mm. uh, so they can be available to their team and kind of see what the team is up to and. Uh, and uh, just kind of participate with the home office, with, mm. the, with headquarters while they're away on a trip. Yeah. And traveling doesn't scale very well. It actually, it scales really lousily mm-hmm. because you can only be in one place at the same time and it takes a lot of time to travel between destinations. With this remote technology, uh, whether it has a manipulator or not, you can be in many different locations during the same day and it will be much better for everyone, for mm-hmm. you, for the environment. Uh, and everything uh, and much less costly. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that's very interesting. Yeah. So cool. thank you very much for taking the time to do an interview. It was n- very nice to have you on the show. Thank you. Yeah, and I hope to speak to you uh, 2025 and we'll all laugh about the strange ideas we had. I had no idea Google was going to buy nine companies. So who knows yeah. what kind of events will happen in the next yeah. 10 years. But that's the, that's the amazing thing with being in such a time in history and a place in history to be able to experience that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you liked this episode of the podcast version of Robots in Depth. This episode is produced together with Vvolver. Vvolver is a platform and community providing engineers informative content that help them innovate. It's how engineers stay cutting edge. Optomica is the founding sponsor for Robots in Depth. Optomica rents anything in modular robotics. Dream, rent, build. Visit aptomica.com to connect. I'm your host, Per Sherboy. Until the next episode, thank you for listening.